Welcome uh, to the old pair of shoes. Come on, that was a great line Brian had for us. Are we glad to see Brian again? Come on, for real? Yeah. If you're watching this in Manistee, you're not sure what we're talking about, but an old friend and his lovely family showed up, so we're fired up about that. My name is John, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad that uh, you're with us this weekend. Um, We're in 1 Samuel 27, and before we get there, I just wanted to share one thing. I was uh, born and raised in the Christian ghetto. We might have to turn that down just a hair. I think I'm I think I'm a little hot. I'm a little hot tonight. Notice that? That's on me. All right? I'm always moving this around. I was born and raised in the Christian ghetto. And for those of you that don't know what that means, that means from a very young age, I was in church uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, any other time it was open. And I remember one thing about church was it was always hit or miss. Sometimes you could be blessed. Sometimes it could be a little bit crazy. But do you guys remember testimony night? Remember that? Yeah? Now, I don't want to be too hard on that because... The crazy time was when, you know, crazy Aunt Lucy got a hold of the mic and wouldn't let go. And she's talking about her dead goldfish that got resurrected. You know, I was like, all right, man, I don't know. But then every now and then somebody would get up and share a testimony about how God had changed their life. And man, it would hit me right between the eyes. And, you know, in 2021, you know, you might be thinking, where do we do testimony night? I'll tell you where we do it. We do it on the Tabernacle podcast. And if you haven't checked it out already, this week, I had the opportunity to drive to Traverse City and back, and this was one of the best ones because I wasn't on the podcast, right? But Pastor Britton and Pastor Ben interviewed our own Martin Rizzi about his changed life story, and it was powerful. It was powerful. So I just want to throw that out there. If you're missing testimony night, you need to get on the podcast, and that's great fuel for the week. And and we'll keep mentioning that, and, and I hope if it's a blessing to you that you'll share it with some others. The second thing leads into what we're going to speak about this weekend in the message in 1 Samuel 27. Being around the church ghetto for a while, I've had the opportunity to see people come to Christ, see their lives change, or at least what I think their lives change, see them begin to walk with Jesus in this journey, and then, you know, maybe get baptized, maybe become a member, maybe serve, you know, maybe bring their family, and then something happens and I don't see them anymore. Or maybe I do see them anymore, I just don't see them in any faith circles. It's like they're, they start running hard after Jesus, and then all of a sudden, it's like they change teams. Do you know anybody like that? You ever seen that happen? Now, I'm not going to say that I'm Mr. Perfect over here, but I mean, I've had my own struggles, but it, it, it gets really discouraging sometimes when you see somebody that was running hard, that was, that, that was getting after it with this whole Christianity thing, this faith thing, and then something sidetracks them, and they're completely gone. You know, back in the day, we called it backsliding. Do you remember that? It's like you're on the road to glory to Zion, and then you slide backwards. I've backslid once or twice. Some of you backslid more. We see an example of that in the scripture, and and, uh, if you have your Bible, like I said, we're in 1 Samuel 27. To put it in context, remember, Samuel is the anointed to become king guy in Israel. He's not king yet, but he's been anointed. But he's kind of in this position uh, of being president-elect. He's waiting for Saul's term to end, 
And King Saul, the Holy Spirit has left him. And the only way his term is going to end is when God says so. Now, David's had the opportunity to hurry things along. Remember in chapter 24, he could have killed Saul, but he didn't. And he wouldn't let his men kill him. He said, this guy was, was made king by God. And until God says he's no longer king, it's not my job to take his life. And then again, two chapters later, he had the opportunity again to, to, as we heard last week, to have one of his men pin him to the ground with a spear. And he said, no, we're not going to touch the Lord's anointed. And at, at, at this point in David's life, he's the leader of about 600 men. But these men, most of them, we assume, have wives like David does. And where these men have wives, they also have children and they also have servants. So David's little band of brothers, so to speak, is actually more than that. It's, it's probably closer to two to 3,000 people that he's leading. And they're constantly on the move. They're constantly in hiding. They're trying to live off the land. They're trying to live one step ahead of Saul. So there's tension. There's fear. There's aggravation. It's constant. They're trying to figure out, do they wear a mask in Meyer or not? <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to bring it, make it real for us, okay? And then we get to chapter 27. It says, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And, it, and when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. So we can read those words and go, okay, David moved somewhere. This is a big deal. This isn't David left Michigan and decided to get a job in Toledo. This isn't David left the States and decided to go live in Canada, which is just, you know, we're letting them have it for a while. I hope no Canadians are listening. I'm kidding. They're an independent nation, right? The Philistines are the enemies of Israel. Do you remember that place, Gath? Who came from Gath? Goliath. The giant that put David on the map when David killed him. He was from Gath. When it says that David went over, he went all the way over. This is more than backsliding. This is someone who didn't feel safe here and decided to go take up residence with ISIS. Are you tracking? Verse 5, then David said to Achish, that's the king, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. 
And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So Ziklag is a border town. And after he makes friends with the head of the Philistines, the king, this King Achish of Gath, he says, hey, why don't you just let, there's a lot of us here. Okay, this is getting awkward. Why don't you just give me one of your border towns and I'll go live there. And so they give him an outpost. And Ziklag is right on the border between Israel and the land of the Philistines at that time. Probably about 15 miles south of present-day Gaza to just give us some perspective. And for 16 months... He lives among the enemy. He serves the enemy. Did you catch that? He says, if I found favor in your eyes. What's going on? Verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive. But would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jeremelites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say... So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. This is a little more than backsliding. You know, there's something in the phrasing here in the ESV. It says that David went over. He went over. He crossed a line. And it was more than just battle lines. At best, David is in exile. But it sounds like at worst, David is a traitor. He's a traitor. He's a traitor to his people. He's a traitor to his calling. And because this people and this calling are both of God, he's a traitor to God himself. Many of us aren't familiar with this story about David. Oh, we know about the old David and Goliath and the giant thing and the one little stone in the sling. And we know about the whole Bathsheba incident and that was sorted enough. But what about this? You know, one of the things that strikes us about this chapter is there's no mention of God whatsoever. There's no mention. Well, the title of this message is appropriate. It's Breaking Bad. Because David breaks bad, does he not? He breaks all the way bad. It says at the end, even this King Achish says, he has made himself an utter stench to his people. Not only is he in this, t- this border town of Ziklag, but, but just, just to play it out, what we read there at the end is David is taking his men on these little raids and he's raiding Philistine villages and towns, but he's making sure to kill everyone so that they can't tell the king of the Philistines what he's done. And so he'll come back and claim that he's actually making raids on his own people. So he's hiding among the enemy. He's still fighting the enemy. He's murdering everyone in the town. And then he's lying to the king about it. 
Am I overblowing this? This is the Lord's anointed. This is a man after God's own heart. What's wrong with you, David? You're not supposed to be just like me. If I'm honest, if we're honest, how did he get there? How did he break bad? Well, that's the question. What can we learn from this? Well, I think it's all or most of it is right there in the very first verse. I'll read it again to you. It says, then David said in his heart, now I shall perish. One day by the hand of Saul, there is nothing better for me than to escape. It starts out by saying, David said in his heart. David said in his heart. Have you ever heard someone say, you know what? Whatever you do, just follow your heart. You heard that before? Come on, Saturday night. Just let me know you're awake. Yeah. Yeah, just follow your heart. Whoever told you to follow your heart should be shanked. Because your heart's an idiot. Your heart is an idiot. At best, at worst, it says in Jeremiah chapter 17, the human heart, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can discern it? You see, the person that says to follow your heart, this is the height of humanistic thinking. And humans, since our first parents in the garden, have been wicked, fallen, and sinful. You can't trust your heart. You can only trust the Holy Spirit that's in your heart. And I think it's very telling right there in the very first verse. It said, David said in his heart. He he didn't talk about it with, with his mighty men. He didn't talk about it with the guys at Fight Club that know his struggles. He didn't talk about it with Samuel. Of course, Samuel's dead. We don't see any other, I mean, maybe he did, but if there's no wasted words in scripture, it doesn't give us anything else except those words. He said in his heart. And so the implication is he alone in a vacuum made this decision. He came to this conclusion. My friends, this is a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous place to be. And I would contend that any of those people that you've ever, or ever came to your imagination that were once running hard after Jesus, and then all of a sudden they weren't, it started out because they isolated themselves. My worst moments, my worst mistakes, the things I'm most ashamed that I've done, said, thought, whatever, have all happened when I'm in complete isolation. That's where it starts. When I make a decision in isolation outside of community, and I'm going to get a little bit worked up right now, but I I just assure you that I'm angry at myself and that I love you, okay? But I can't afford therapy if I said before, and you're here, so just go along with it. So this is what we do, is we say in our own heart the same thing that David said. It starts out with a fear of man. Did you see that? Now I will perish. And so we make decisions based on what they think or how we'll be perceived, or fear of her, or fear of him, or fear of them. For David, it was, he was like, Saul's going to kill me. Now, how silly is this? God has saved David over and over and over. He's even saved him in, in two chapters ago from himself when he was going to go kill everyone. But no, now all of a sudden, the strain is too much. The stress is too much. One more person told him to put on a mask, and he snapped. That's just easy, right? I should probably stop talking about that. But he says, now I shall perish. And we don't know where it came from, but he had his last bit, could take no more. And now he's decided he's going to die if he doesn't make a unilateral decision. Doesn't ask God, doesn't seek wise counsel. He's in complete isolation and he trusts the deceit of his own heart. He says, now I will perish By the hand of Saul. And then get this. There's nothing better for me. There's nothing better for me. 
Now, I have the luxury of thousands of years later in the rest of the story, but that seems pretty pathetic, doesn't it? You were anointed king, bro. You're going to be the king. There's nothing better for me than to go join ISIS. There's nothing better for me. I'm going to go choose another one. There's nothing better for me. I'm going to go medicate with what I've always medicated before. There's nothing better for me. It didn't, you know, I didn't come to Jesus and pray a prayer and, you know, do all the right things. And, you know, all the consequences just didn't go away. There's nothing better. I'm going to go back to my old life. The one that I was so desperate to get away from. This is David. This is us, if we're honest. This is us. So he has this woe is me. He's fearful. He's fearful of man. He's fearful of life on God's terms. You see, he knew that God was in control. I mean, at least that's the lip service he's been giving in these last few chapters. But all of a sudden, it's, it's the timing, you know, he's not good with it anymore. Or what it might cost him or where he's got to go or, or how many more times he's got to dodge Saul's spear. And he snaps. And these horrible words... So David arose and went over. And the sad thing is, is it, it wasn't just this one little moment of David going over. Because he took his wives, and he took his children, and he took his men, and he took their wives, and he, take, and he took their children. You see, we never sin in a vacuum. You may think that your sin is secret. It's not. Scripture says that surely your sin will find you out. Scripture always says that God cannot be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. That includes women. Your sin will always find you out. There's always consequences. There's ripples. There's repercussions. And, if, and even if in the immediate you don't feel the repercussions of your sin, eventually there will be repercussions. And here he's taking all of these people, maybe two to 3,000, and he's taking them into a pagan land that worships false gods. The whole point of God giving Israel their own place all the way back in the book of Exodus and, and, and through Joshua was to conquer the land and drive these idol-worshiping, wicked people out so they would not infect them. That was the whole thing. Why did God have to kill everyone? Because they wanted to kill everyone. It was total war. And so God wanted Joshua to lead the people in to conquer the land so there could be a land that worshiped the one true God. And David knows this. He's been anointed by that God. And what does David do? I'm going to take all my people and we're going to go live with the idol worshipers. The story is so 2021. I've seen it, I've witnessed it, I've probably lived it. Started in his heart. He was afraid of man, afraid for his own life. Never going to get better, hopeless, despairing. And that's when he goes over. His fear in that moment exceeded his faith. Isn't that interesting why we run back to the world You know, God saves us from sin, and then we love to run back to the world. In James chapter 4, the author says this in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Enmity means to be an enemy of. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And this is exactly what David is doing. He's gone over and he has made friends with the world. 
He's made friends with King Achish of Gath, the very king, the very leader, the very people of which he's committed his whole life to fighting against. This is the one he tried to fool by trying to be crazy. This, this king's not the smartest king on the other side. Maybe David thought, oh, I could just fool this guy. Well, he's not just fooling him. He's serving him. He's friends with him. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. That's the constant struggle. Am I going to be friends with God or am I going to be friends with the world? And if, and if driven by fear of man, we're so desperate to fit in. We want to fit in with the world's values. We want to fit in with the world's ideology. We want to fit in with the world's jokes and their memes. We just want to be one of the guys and be authentic and be real. Don't try too hard. Because if we're a little too friendly with the world, scripture says you're actually becoming, or you are, an enemy of God himself. Christians have been trying to fit in with the world for 2,000 years. So what's the lesson for us? I think it's really simple. Even though there's no mention of God in here, we see it, at least I see it, jumping off the page in the example of David and his mistake. And that's simply that fear is the enemy of faith. Fear is the enemy of faith. Faith and fear cannot coexist, right? Or at least you can't have them exist in equal portions. We all have fears. And there's nothing wrong with our feelings. You've probably heard us say that before. If you've ever been therapy or if you've ever been around the block for a minute. There's nothing wrong or you can't be wrong for how you feel. Feelings are a gift from God. Our emotions However, we can sin when we're ruled by our feelings. And if I have fearful feelings and my feelings of fear exceed my faith, it's going to lead me to go over every single time. Because fear is the enemy of faith. Fear is what keeps men and women and students back from exercising faith. Simple faith. Simple things that we're supposed to do. Things that fall into the category of loving God, loving people, and making disciples. And when we fear man more than we have faith in God, we'll give in to man and into that fear. When we fear living life on God's terms, and what I mean by that is what he says is right about my finances, what he says is right about my marriage, what he says is right about my my giving, my service, my priorities. When I would rather live life on my terms instead of God's terms, it's because I'm afraid of life on God's terms. I want to do things my way, which is the very thing that got our first parents in trouble in the Garden of Eden. And so when I'm afraid of life on God's terms, that fear exceeds my faith that God will come through, that God's way is better. Fear is the enemy of faith. And when I have more fear and more of that feeling than the faith I'm willing to exercise, at least for me, it leads me to desperation and usually to sin. Because I start taking matters into my own hands and then I start thinking, you know what I need to do? I need to go over here and see if I can fix it on my own. So it's my way instead of God's way. In Matthew chapter 10... Jesus told us very clearly, he said, do not fear the one who can kill the body, but not the soul. 
Rather, we should fear the one who can kill both body and soul and condemn us to hell. And that's not to scare anybody. That's just the truth. Why am I more afraid of that random stranger's opinion of me that I just ran into into the coffee shop than I am of what God thinks of me? Why am I more interested in changing this person's politics instead of being interested in changing this person's belief about God himself? Politics might help his life for a minute. Changing what he believes about God will save his eternal soul. Oh, no, I think faith should be private. Faith's a private thing? How'd that work out for David? David said in his heart, I'm just going to keep this private. I'm not going to bug the mighty men. I'm not going to talk to my wives about it. You know, I'm the anointed, so never, you know, things are never going to get better. I'm going to end up dead, so this is the plan. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, you know, this is the chapter with all the blesseds. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And I'm going to share something with you that's none of your business, okay? So don't be trying to figure it out. If it bothers you, you can just pray for me. I'm 51 years old, and every year I'm alive, I find myself in the back of my mind. I mean, I love Jesus. I love serving Jesus, talking to Jesus, leading people to Christ, baptizing people, going to fight club. I love all that stuff. But I got to be honest with you, there's this little voice in the back of my head that says, is this all there is? Will I ever be fully satisfied? I'm admitting that to you. I memorized that verse in faith to overcome my fear that life might not fully satisfy. You see, I know the answer that life won't ever fully satisfy. It won't. Even when Billy Graham died, he died with regrets. What if I'd have chosen this route? What if I'd have done this? I could have been a better dad, spent more time with my kids, right? Life's not supposed to satisfy. Only Jesus is going to satisfy, friends. Eternity with him, that's the finish line. That's the finish line. Not retirement. Not some midlife moment. No, there we go. It's going to be all over Twitter face. Pastor John's having a midlife. No, I'm not. I'm being honest. But Jesus said, blessed are those, John, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for my sake, you will be satisfied. You see, David feared life on God's terms. And he has this moment of weakness. It's a horrible moment of weakness. It lasts 16 months where he's playing for the other team. And this isn't like school of choice, right? This isn't like he was going to Buckley and decided he was going to go to Mesick now. No, this is, he went to fight for the bad guys. Feelings aren't wrong. But we can't be ruled by our feelings. Some of us, we don't leave the church or leave the faith, but we're still ruled by feelings, same way David was. Pastor Tim and I saw this when God, and I believe God laid on our hearts some things that needed to change in a little old country church called the Buckley Gospel Tabernacle. And they were radical. 
like drums. You know? Drums. And paint. And, and remodeling. Oh, and the time we got rid of the pews and got soft chairs that you kind of sink into. You're sitting in them right now. You'd think we were preaching from the Mormon Bible. It can happen in the church too, you know. And I made a mental note. John, when you get older and older, don't, don't be ruled by fear, man. Don't be ruled by fear. You know, I wasn't going to say this, but I, I'm going to. John and Barb are sitting right here, three rows back. Our care pastor. Lived in the same town 40 years, John. 40 years, John. Lived in the same town for 40 years. It's where all their family is. And when God led John and Barb to come up and say, hey, if we move up here and buy a house, sell our house down there, move up here, would you find us a volunteer position? Yeah, man, we don't have no job here. You know, we like your skinny jean wearing son back here that can play the guitar. And we like you too, but we don't really have a job that's going to pay right now. I remember sitting at patty cakes and John saying, you know what? I don't want to be one of those old people that sits around and complains. I want to be a part of a happening church before I die. And I made another mental note. I want to have the courage of John Williams when I'm his age. And he's old as rocks. (laughs) Fear is the enemy of faith. And you too have exhibited great faith. And we love you. We can't be ruled by fear. Fear will prevent you from saying yes to Jesus. Fear will prevent you from exercising faith in serving. Fear will restrain you from exercising your faith with your giving. Fear will hold you back from a conversation at school, at work, with your friends. It'll be fear that is the enemy of faith. It's not politics or politicians or opinions, vaxxers or anti. Fear is the enemy of faith. Fear is the enemy of faith. Jesus said, do not fear the one who can kill the body and not the soul, but fear the one who can kill both. We're called to fear God and God alone. Second Timothy, you know, because this is the part of the sermon where I'm supposed to give you like, here's, here's four things. Here's just four quick things. Well, we'll just let the Bible do that if that's okay with you. All right, so if you wanted the four quick things, here's the four quick things. It's in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Don't you love how Paul writes? That's so epic. You know, not, hey, remember that guy? Look at this. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Can I get a witness in here? Right? <laughs> So he's saying, hey, focus on him. Are you fearful? Okay, I get afraid too. Fear of man, fear of life on God's terms. Will it ever satisfy? That's okay. But you know what? Remember Jesus. Remember him. Who, by the way, is the one true king of this King David. He's a descendant. So we're connecting now Jesus to this chapter. Remember Jesus as preached in my gospel. And if you skip down, this is what he says in verse 11. 
in regards to him. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Now that's not just a poem. Did you see the four things? He said, if, you die, if, if we've died with Jesus, we will live with Jesus. It's not talking about martyrdom there. It's talking about this mystical coming to salvation where I die to myself and I come alive in Christ. This is testified to in baptism. When you go under the water, death, burial, and you come out, resurrection, a new creation according to Galatians 5.17. This, if you've died with him, if you've died to yourself and become a Christian, there's a promise. You'll live with him. Can we get excited about that? And then the second thing, if we endure, we will also reign with him. That speaks to, you know, under suffering, yes, there'll be some sacrifice. If we can persevere, if you can just hang on. If David would have hung on a little bit, who knows what would have happened, right? But he decided, oh no, it's never going to get better. I'm going to perish. There's no hope for me. How many times do we give up just a couple minutes too early when help was coming? We give up too early on the relationship. We give up too early on God. It says if we'll endure, we're going to reign with him someday. And then here's the warning. If we deny him, he will deny us. That means if you walk away and you disown Christ, there's nothing left for him to do but to disown you. But there's hope. Look at verse 13. I love verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. That means you're going to fail. I've failed. Has anybody here failed? Okay. Some of you are going to heaven with me because you're honest. I'm not going to say I failed. That would require my hand moving. Has anyone out there failed? All right, yeah. Well, if we've died with him, if we're endeavoring to endure with him, if we have not denied him, but there's been moments of faithlessness, and I confess, I've had moments of faithlessness. There's good news. He remains faithful. You don't have to become a Christian again. And you can argue about this later, who's saved and who's not saved. But if you're really saved and you haven't denied, if you haven't become an apostate and walked away, but there's moments you've been faithless, guess what? We have a God who's faithful because he cannot deny himself. I'm a father. I have children. They fail all the time. And by the way, so do I. But I don't stop being their dad. And they don't stop being my kid just because. They failed. That's the same way it is, and even more with our God. And as you'll see in the coming chapters, God is faithful to David. David has this faithless moment. He doesn't walk away from God, but he walks away from God's people. He doesn't deny that God exists, but boy, I tell you, he's living as a hired gun, as a mercenary, a killer, a liar, a traitor. It doesn't get much worse, although it will. It will, if you stick around. We'll get to it sometime in the summer or next fall. (laughs) But it's going to get worse, right? 
But when we're faithless, he's faithful. Is that good news? Do you have a human relationship like that? Probably not. But we can have that with God our Father. The band's going to come. and We're going to sing. And I wonder if you bow your heads with me. If you've never had a relationship that even when you're faithless, this one will be faithful to you, you can become a Christian. We invite you to start that relationship right now. But for many of us living in 2021, we find ourselves in fear. Fear is the enemy of our faith. And having a choice of will we be ruled by faith or will we be ruled by fear? And these are in the small everyday moments. God, would you, would you help us to endure? Would you strengthen us? God, would you help us to fight isolation, coming up with stupid, deceitful ideas in our own heart, but rather to learn to rely on the men and women, the friends, the Christian friends around us in our moments of fear and hopelessness and despair? God, I thank you that we have a greater king than King David, that we have King Jesus who did not deny you, that he endured to the end all the way unto death, that he reigns and that, God, you promised that we'll reign with him. Thank you that he was faithful because you knew that there will be times when I would be faithless. God, that is the king that we worship. That is the king that we sing our praises to. And God, as we sing in these moments, I pray that this would be the testimony of our heart and that we would sing with reckless abandon. And God, if there's, if there's sin that we need to confess, that we would do it even in these moments so that we can say that we're no longer slaves to fear, but we can celebrate that we're children of God. And all of that is made possible by your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.